What's the worst thing that they've said to you? Number one, your head's too big. Number two, your butt's too big. Number three, when you die, can I get your money? <laughs> they, they did not say. That, by the way, that's in the last die, three weeks. I, within the last three weeks. Last three All weeks. right, so here's a question. Why are you letting them watch Succession? That is not a how-to. Yeah. Brother from another mother. We say that a lot to each other. Sometimes we even mean it. When it comes to Brian Bahaley, I actually do. We first met each other in Atlanta more than 20 years ago. I was doing a tennis story for the newspaper. He was an up-and-coming professional tennis player. Brian reached his highest number 57 in the world, and he beat a few top 10 players along the way, including a world number one. Shoulder injuries forced him to retire in 2007. He came out of the closet in 2017. Today, he's a married father of two, CEO of UFIT Gems, and is training to become the first openly gay president of the USTA board. His twin boys did the coin flip for what is assumed to be the last doubles match at the US Open for Venus and Serena Williams. I was there, and I'll admit, I got a little teary-eyed. I mean, I remember Brian being scared to come out to me, and I'm gay. Seeing my brother with his family next to two of the game's greatest at Arthur Ashe Stadium, Knowing how frightening it was for him to be on tour, it was all just amazing. I still clowned him, though. That's what brothers do. Talk junk and throw shade. You're going to hear a lot of that this episode of Life Out Loud, as Brian and I talk about his days as a closeted tennis player and why he didn't come out until he was retired. We also go over the list. In the iconic movie The Devil Wears Prada, Miranda Priestly hands Irv her list. Brian has a list as well. But instead of photographers and models, it's his list of all the things I didn't tell him about fatherhood but should have, at least according to him. Basically, it's his list of complaints. He does that a lot. You get used to it. Later on, we'll have another member of my family of choice, Roxanne Jones. She's my sister from another mister, if you will. She's also the matriarch of the Johnsons, the nickname given to our family of choice I talk about in the first episode of the season. Roxanne was a founding editor of ESPN The Magazine and was one of my bosses in New York. Over time, our work friendship morphed into a family unit. Her son Malcolm is like my own. LZ is like hers. We talk about how our family of choice kept us from losing our minds. And trust me, my story would be very, very different today if I didn't have Roxanne's love and support. So I'm curious to see what she has to say about Brian's so-called list. It's amazing to me how they can go from like, I, when I grow up someday, I want to build houses for poor people so everyone can have a home. I'm like, that's so sweet. Like, what a nice Aww. boy you are. And then it's like, your head's too big and I want your money when you're dead. Like, <laughs> what did you do to our boys? Uh, exactly. What and did I do? Said our parenting. <laughs> All right. So obviously we just jumped right into this conversation because you and I are basically brothers. And for those who don't know, I've known Brian 20 plus years now? Yeah, over 20 years. Okay, so when did you come out? Not publicly till I was 35. Um, not privately till I was probably 28. So, you know, we're talking 15 years ago. But you came out in your late 20s? Yeah. I Dude, I was, still, I was almost already? getting engaged to a girl in my early 20s. So, like, I... I wasn't even in the ballpark of figuring out. And don't be giving me looks about that because we know your background already. <laughs> Listeners, just prepare yourselves because this is how we talk to each other. <laughs> Scathing, brutal honesty, mm -hmm. such as it is. I got notes. Because I'm trying to remember, at the point at which you, you told me, and I remember the nights, I just don't remember where how old you were or where you were in the process of telling everyone. But I believe I was like in your top five people that you told. <laughs> you were one of the early ones. I, you know, I had a bunch of different types of friends, and I probably did that purposefully, where I sort of segmented them in different groups. I had my church friends, and they were the hardest to tell. You had your athlete friends, like that was its own group. I didn't have that many gay friends, so I mean, you were probably it. Um, and so <laughs> my fear with you was not really there. Um, so that was probably easy. It probably trained me for the conversations down the road, but all the different types of college friends, your family, um, you know, it was hard. 
you were certainly one of the earlier ones that kind of boosted my confidence for later conversations. When you go back and you think about those different segments of friends, which would you say was the most difficult? Was it the church people or was it the athletes? Or was it the ones who thought they always knew you and now you're presenting new information and now they are reevaluating everything? Yeah, I mean, they were so hard for different reasons. I would say the church friends were challenging because it was a love the sinner, hate the sin. It became a very, our relationship totally shifted in a kind of condescending way. Athletes, it was just more awkward. I'd say the one that hurt me the most was my good friends because they were sort of like, how could you have been going through all this? How could this be you? And you don't think, feel comfortable or confident enough to tell me that. And what does that say about our friendship? And I mean, that's just a gut punch a little bit because they're not wrong. Those friendships, the ones that lasted, took some time to repair. I didn't realize the damage I had done. When you think about the word family, as it pertains to the coming out process, which family do you think was more accepting, your family, your choice, or the family you were born into? Family I was born into. My parents, my sister, were just so big advocates of mine. And I think in order to try and achieve great things in sports, you got to have the backing of your family. It, it, can, it helps incredibly. And so it was kind of a, okay, and cool. Let's keep it going. Like, I'm proud of you. Let's keep it moving. And so um, not a lot of long conversations, but that was more a reflection of me. Still, even as I was coming out, wasn't totally sure I was gay. Like, I just Wait, sort of what? thought maybe, I know that I know that doesn't make sense, but I, I just thought to myself, this could be a thing, thinking about nature versus nurture, and maybe, you know, is this really me? Is it not? You were the only one that I knew that I felt like I had a ton in common with. Outside of that, like, when I was going out, I just was like, I don't really fit in here. My family was incredibly um, patient with me on it, but I, I sort of avoided that big announcement because it was a long journey for me to sort of figuring that out. I mean, I went through a lot of stuff over four to five years to finally get my act together and figure out who I was. Our past sort of informs our present and thus our future. And so I think it is important to just kind of appeal a little bit of, you know, just what it was like for you on tour um, because you are closeted. And tennis, in a lot of ways, is such a lonely sport. You know, even your friends that you may have within this sport, because they have varying degrees of results, they have varying degrees of responsibilities, right? Like you and Andy Roddick were good buddies when you were on tour, but he's the top American male. You're your own way up. You have two different sets of obligations and responsibilities. How did that shape your relationship with him? And of course, how did that shape your willingness to come out? Tennis is an incredibly lonely sport, and you're trying to find your peers while you're out there. You're not always close friends with people in your same ranking band a little bit, right? So Andy and I could be super close. He's in the top five, like I'm in the top 70. Like we're sort of in different spaces. He was being incredibly supportive and, a, you know, a great friend. But it's hard because you are traveling so much by yourself without family, without friends. And so those sort of buddies that you have on there are critical. So the thought of potentially coming out and risking that rejection in the locker room, rejection amongst your peers, only isolates you to a level that at the time felt like my career would probably, it felt like it would end because I'm just now going to be on my own by myself. It's all worst case scenario planning a little bit. So it was hard and it almost felt like a non-starter, both in terms of, you know, it's incredibly international sports. So you're going to be asked to play in countries where being gay is illegal. So what kind of risk am I taking there? And secondly, you know, you some cases you don't have a coach in certain places, so you got to trust your people you're competing against to practice with. What if nobody wants to practice with me? I mean, I've put 25 years, blood, sweat, and tears to become a professional athlete, and you're telling me I'm going to put that all on the line to potentially lose a bunch of friends, be completely isolated, um, you know, have a risk, you know, as I go into certain countries and play, let alone the financial risk around sponsorships at those times. So. For me, it only tightened my paranoia and tightened my complete inability to talk about it, not only to other people, but to myself. Because if I had to really understand who I was, I mean, what impact that can have on my tennis? So, you know, out of sight, out of mind, tennis teaches you to manage your emotions. So just don't think about it. And I was exceptional at, 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 at denial. <laughs> so because you understood both the loneliness aspect of the sport as well as the loneliness aspect of coming out within the sport. Looking back on those days, how much of your fear was 
true and real and how much of it was sort of a manufactured existence of inside of your head? Impossible to know. I think some of it was true and some of it was not. I think, um, listen, it would have been tricky. I mean, you know, a lot of the coming out stories we've seen with athletes and there's not many, they're around a team of people they can trust and are there to support them and need to support them in order to win. So let's fast forward a little bit, right? You've navigated through, I would say, probably the most challenging part of your closeted life, which is actually the coming out part, right? Actually showing people who you are. How do you think that influences the way that you parent today? And you are the father of a pair of beautiful twins, six years old. Obviously, it's hard for you to know which decisions are coming from your own experiences and which decisions are coming from being in the moment and trying to navigate the moment in a vacuum. I don't think you can parent in a vacuum, but you can certainly be cognizant of what influences you. As you are watching your boys grow and as you are processing what you say to them and how it's going to influence them going forward, how much of those closeted days do you think find themselves in the words that you say today? So I spent many years of my life under the expectations of others. And I say that to mean if people expected something from me or there was a life that I was expected to go down and live or what was the right thing to do, I did it. And that regardless of whether it was actually authentically me, I was too busy picking up on what was expected from my parents, from friends, to be the professional athlete with a Hollywood actress, girlfriend, it was like, you know, you're just trying to, to achieve what everybody else told you was success. And so for me, even as I think about the coming out process, I mean, you and I have talked about it briefly, but I, you know, I went through a conversion therapy world for about a year, you know, trying to come out to my friends and figuring out who I was. I think how that impacts my parenting is I really want to not project my desires, hopes, expectations on my boys. So even though maybe when I thought when they grew up, it's like, I want them to be an athlete. I want them to be this and this. I've just had to take a step back. So when I see them being an exceptional at art or something maybe different than what I thought, or maybe even wanted before I even had kids, really encouraging them to find their instinct, their voice and, and feeling uh, like it's such a uh, success to be authentically yourself because I spent and wasted so many years trying to be what everybody else wanted me to be. I want to teach them what it means to work hard when they find something they're great at and that they're passionate about and passion takes work, but I want it to be theirs. And um, so I'm very thoughtful about how I engage with them that way. Are they engaged in any sports? And is tennis one of them? <laughs> so listen, I believe in exposure to everything. What's hilarious for me is I always wanted a super competitive kid because I'm competitive and my competitive kid loved art and my athletic kid like, <laughs> doesn't want to compete on anything. I'm like, how do I mix you two and get the kid that I was planning on? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's great. You know, there's just a, it's a little bit of both, but right now, yeah, we're doing, you're certainly playing tennis. We're, you know, golf, bowling, lacrosse, expose it to them all. And let's just see what they pick. You need to take them to basketball, put them in the hood a little bit. I mean, we're you getting there. We're getting there. Rough up the edges a little bit. there. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked you to do a little homework assignment, uh -huh. which we'll get to a little bit later. What would you say was the biggest surprise? in terms of what you thought parenting was like going into it. And now that you're, I'm going to say five years, because really in the first year, you're not parenting. You're just surviving, changing diapers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you're not telling them anything. They're telling you everything. Mm -hmm. And you're listening, even though you can't understand where they're saying. But for the last five years, you've been parenting, if you will. What has been, do you think, the biggest surprise in that process from what you thought it was to what you've actually have come to accept that it is. I've always felt like you train properly, you act properly, you do the daily habits properly, like the, the right outcome comes in place. And so for me, I always thought about parenting, like do your research, read your books, figure out the right ways to do it and execute. And I don't know how to think any other way. And what so surprised me was the, how much I, forgot about the individuality of people. And when I say that to mean, you know, I've got one kid who come hell or high water will just dive headfirst into everything. Bleed has gone to the hospital four times, like just full, you know, bring on risk. The other one's crying at the drop of a hat. The other one's like, like there's just those built in personality traits that you've got to parent around that I just 
didn't understand how much of who you are comes out right at the beginning. And that I, I just, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but I just thought, Hey, if I crush it at parenting, there's a way to do it. Talk to the experts and I will generate a great child that people will then be jealous of, which makes me a great parent, which makes me awesome. And good God, it <laughs> come out so different. And so what works for the parent next door doesn't work for your kids. And you got to constantly dance. And just when you think you've got it, they change again. So I just didn't, I wasn't ready for that roller coaster. I thought it was uh, more of a science than an art. And uh, boy, was I wrong. Because I know you and how you like to structure your world. <laughs> I love the fact that these little boys are coming and just like going, no, we're blowing all this up. All this blueprint stuff. Who who, who has blueprints for parenting? Whoosh. Of course I do. I got, I got blueprints and I got coaches. Like who's going to coach me through this? Like there's a way. There's a right and there's a wrong way to do it. And we may not want to say it, but it's true. Well, it turns out that's not right. So now what do I do? You know, I'm just used to a tennis coach telling me, you know, the path. And now it's just this fluid, artistic, emotional journey that you're on. Boy, it's just, it's, it's hard. When you think about how people like to characterize, particularly gay men as groomers, right? And we know who those people are. What goes to your mind? Oh, man. Um, it's one of the most and in biggest insults. I have felt even more so as a parent, um, you know, when I get advice from different people, you know, and we've only had this once so far, but, you know, our boys wanted to have somebody over and their parents weren't comfortable having their kids over, you know, exposing them to us and our lifestyle. And, and there, there felt like some other undertones and I've heard the grooming comments. It's so, um, boy, it's just, it's, it's hard to describe how deeply insulting that is. It's, it's hurtful in a really odd way, almost more than I thought it would be, but how dare they, you know, when I just want to experience exactly what they have, which is loving a kid, raising a kid and building a family that somehow the next fear they have out of them is that I would be a groomer. I think we got a long way to go to sort of cut that out. And I, I remember hearing that word when my son was your boy's age, right? Like he's 26 now. So he's talking like 20 years ago, whatever the heck. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> How am I still younger looking at you after 20 years? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. you're lighting. Go ahead. <laughs> um, the thing that used to irritate me most, even more so than grooming, was this idea that I was babysitting. That when people saw me with my son out in public, they would say things like, oh, daddy daycare or, you know, babysitting your kid and or babysitting. It was never babysitting your kid. You're like, oh, you're just babysitting as if being a father somehow lowered the expectations or requirements to be a parent. And that if you did see me with my son, that was an awkward temporary situation and things returned to normal once the woman showed back up. <laughs> That's what irritated me the most that not even realizing if I'm gay or not, just simply being a man with a kid was a unusual enough situation that people felt comfortable enough to come up to me in public and say, Oh, look at you, baby city. <laughs> and it's been really interesting how much women, when they see you alone with your kid or kids, their desire to sort of give you, oh, thanks for your wife must feel so lucky, number one. And number two, just the need to give you feedback, right? You're a man. You don't know. Let me tell you how to handle the situation. Oh, is your kid not eating? This is what I used to try with them. I'm like, you're not giving that kind of feedback to other women. You're just going to walk up to us and tell us how to parent. Like, that stuff drives me. It's fine. I, listen, I always try and think about people's motives and their intentions. I think the intentions are fine, but, you know, after a while, do I love unsolicited feedback about ways to parent? You know, probably not my favorite. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I want to go back, though. I realized when you when you asked me about the grooming question, I, I was thinking about what makes it so sensitive for me. When I went through the conversion therapy process, they put together gay people with pedophiles. And we were meant to say that our... Uh, sexual desires were both disgusting and needed to be repaired and fixed. And I had to spend many years coming out of that, trying to unwind the teachings that were sort of put in front of me, that somehow being attracted and in love with another man is on the same level and, and frankly, a gateway somehow to being inappropriate with children. And that is one of the most painful and hurtful 
uh, experiences and parallels that I ever went through. So to hear that narrative out there is incredibly, uh, it, it, it triggers a lot of really bad memories for me. It, it, it's awful. You're absolutely correct. It, it is by far, like I am actually more offended by that word than I am any anti-gay slur. And I don't know if it's because I've been conditioned because like you have been in, around sports and athletes like my right. entire life. And that word is just an adjective at this point, <laughs> you know, Correct. occasionally an adverb, you know, if it gets fancy, but never a noun. Sure. It's never like a person, right? It's always like a descriptor. I mean, there's just so much that goes with that group, you know, that it, what it says about you as a person and a character, that to me is just so much more about the person saying it and whether they even have the motive and intention behind what they're saying. It's, it's a way softer landing for me. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. I want to get to your list, the homework assignment that I gave you. Yeah, that you gave me with 12 hours to go, which is really thoughtful. Seriously? Tennis player? Uh-huh. You can't, you can't uh-huh. piece yourself together in 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reason why I wanted to give you that homework assignment is because it dawned on me that we actually have never really had this conversation before. So I uh-huh. thought it'd be kind of cool to have in real time. So I, I, I think it's an interesting choice by you to let me publicly air what I'm disappointed at in you. And I actually <laughs> really look forward to that. <laughs> so would you mind sharing then, since you're looking forward to it, sharing with the listeners your homework assignment so we can check your grades and see whether or not you did it right. So the question is the two questions, but most of my focus will be on the first, which is what are the, you know, 10 things that LD never told you and maybe should have told you about what it's like being a father. Is that fair? <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. And I would, I would attempt to explain myself, um, <laughs> you know, in response to your, your, your list here. So I, I feel awful because I do view you as my younger brother. I should have given you a heads up on some things. Uh-huh. Uh, but to be quite honest with you, I didn't tell you to have twins. You doubled it up. <laughs> I already had one. <laughs> you, you're the one that got greedy. So oh, God. it's kind of your thing. So all right, what's number one? So the first one, it's for me, is more just your general failure. And to me, <laughs> you sort of would go around like you always had your stuff together right like you were everywhere but it was always effortless in that you were doing it and it almost was like your life wasn't that much different you were able to manage it all and you're a liar and (laughs) you lie because of the actual impact that it has on your like on your friendship on your work on your life it is so incredibly difficult and my belief going into parenthood was like this will be effortless like this kid will be an extension of me I'll spend some time with it, but like nothing's really going to change. And the amount of your life that actually changes is massive. And you sort of go in with this expectation. Life to me is all about expectations, but I was assuming things aren't going to change that much. And literally within 48 hours, they're handing me this infant who, you know, I don't know how to change a diaper. How do I hold it? It's five pounds. Can I break it? It's screaming. (laughs) Like my life completely changed and you gave me no heads up. And, and, and even worse, you do what most of America does, which makes it look effortless, as if it's not even that difficult. All right, first and of it's all, unbelievably challenging. I have to stop you 
because if you didn't notice I had gray hairs and had started dyeing my hair like 10 years oh, ago, please. whatever the heck, that was the first indication that life was hard. All right. Uh-huh. When we first met, I was in shape <laughs> and my hair was always flawless. And then you progressively saw me fall to pieces and you try to pretend as if it was effortless. You were moving jobs. You were making time for me. Your friend, your Steve. It's like, I you hung know, out with you because you kid- bought the drinks. I didn't want to pay for the alcohol. And I knew if I invited you to hang out, you always pay. Here, here's the thing, B. And I, and I think part of this is just cultural, right? So in the black community or how I grew up, specifically in the black community, you just didn't talk about your business. You didn't talk about your money. You didn't talk about your hurt, your trauma. You didn't really talk too much about the discomfort in a, in a lot of ways because it was understood. You know, this is black in America. Like you just kind of when you when you hear that phrase, it isn't because we all think alike. It's because many of us experience similar things as we navigate American life. And so you just learn to just sort of have these unspokens and you keep pushing through because everyone recognizes that life can be difficult in general. And as a black American with the systemic racism that people are still denying that is very much still influencing the way we live today. You just learn to how to like take the punches and keep it pushing because you're getting punched so much that if you stop, you won't be able to actually live your life. So I wasn't trying to make it seem as if having children didn't require you to change it all. It's only that having children didn't change the way in which I presented myself to the public, which is you can't break my soul which is ain't no stopping us now, which is, you know what I'm saying? Like these anthems that you've heard in the black community, they're not in a vacuum. Hip hop was born out of this stuff. The blues was born out of this stuff. Jazz, like all these expressions of, of how black Americans were living were born out of, you know, that music and expressions were born out of those examples. So I'm sorry that you thought that having kids was going to be easy because I didn't stop every five seconds to go, oh my God, these kids. <laughs> I mean, you just don't, you never would complain about it. And listen, you're one of my best friends. You're in my top five. Like, pain. After all these years, I'm still in the top five. It's moving down. <laughs> I would have expected to hear some pain in your voice and some struggle. And like, listen, all I got was like you saying, you know, moving along great. And women obviously love to get back in shape within three months and they're in love and they're posting on Instagram that they, they found the love of their life. And it's just all so much secrecy about <laughs> just how hard it is um, and the work and how it completely changes your life. Not a little bit. And I've got more on that. Um, and I just felt like you had such a good friend. My bad. You could have coached. You'd have to tell me how bad it was for you. You keep it to yourself. But a coaching would have been nice. I think I did tell you, you may have to cancel your gym membership. You did it. You didn't. I'm sorry. What else? What's number two? The sound and power of a cry. When I think about like the PTSD that came from the first year, again, all this is like in preparation, but I felt like my brain has been totally reprogrammed because when you have a year's worth of screaming and crying and no sleeping, somehow you now have built in this like intense attachment to your kid yep. where, I mean, and this was last night three in the morning, I, I can hear him sort of make a sound and move. I toot straight out of bed. I'm like, what's going on? What's happening? Like, I've got superhuman ear strength to hear them in a way that is like not human, not normal. And I don't like it because it's just this year's worth of grinding of the sound of their screaming and crying. And with twins, I will tell you, if there are twins out there, your parents are a thing. Like, there's 24 hours when one would go down, the other one would wake up and man, just the intensity of it. And now who it <laughs> turns you into at the end is like, whew, like, and now I'm just permanently attached to it. And it, 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 it was a wild ride for that. You, you are absolutely correct. Yeah. Not pleasant. So you do get conditioned to hear your kid's voice. Great. And I would say that it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Actually. It's, it's, just, yeah. it's, it's nice. I'm sorry, but the, but the initial conditioning of it is traumatic. The conditioning of it is horrific. That first year is brutal. So have, um, you, have you lost the next, boys yet? Oh, LD, I, we were at the beach. And, you know, finally at that age where it's like they're digging, you know, Bill and I are sitting there relaxing. I'm like, oh, we finally made it out of those first couple bad years. You know, everything's great. We're talking, catching up. I'm like, this beach life is the best. Look up, they're gone. <laughs> and you look left. 
Dawn, right, Dawn. Immediately, finally, see Parker grab him. I'm like, all right, there's one. The second one, we're talking a solid two minutes. Oh, my God. Uh, where is he? And he's only three. He can only go so far. Panic, sprinting, running. I mean, I, I hate him talking about it because my heart rate starts to accelerate. I look down the beach. The boy is on the shoulders of the lifeguard. <laughs> laughing, giggling, you know, having the time of his life, looking, pointing over at me. And I'm just like, you mother. <laughs> like, I mean, just went over, made some friends. God only knows when the lifeguard's coming over looking at me like, so what? Were you, were you looking for your child? <laughs> yeah. What, what, great, what, great his, job, what, what was he doing? He didn't get in the water, did he? No, he was, they were thankfully. And the reason why we weren't nervous, right? is because they were too scared of the water at that age. Right. Okay. They get up to do it and then they run from it. So they're like, there wasn't that necessarily anxiety around it, which is why we just thought they'd be digging. Yeah. Not so much. Oh my gosh. Did you blame Bill? Not great. Of course they did. I don't <laughs> take ownership for that. He should have been watching them. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Not what great. else did I not tell you? My friend group was going to implode. You know, I think again, as you're building relationships growing up, it's like, oh, this kid will be a wonderful extension of it but you start to realize number one you're going to lose some friends who either want need like or expect a lot of your time like that's not going to happen anymore secondly if they don't have kids or sort of want to be around it you sort of lose them and then on top of losing them you're now forced to sort of hang with new people right because of your kids parents and their friends and all of that so not only is it now hard to find somebody that i like but i've got to also like their spouse Right? right, you sort of deal with that, and what does that look and feel like? And did Bill like their spouse? And now it's a step further of do they have kids around our kids' age? And even a step further than that, do we have similar parenting philosophies, or is this other kid spoiled, a brat, or you know, going to teach my kids horrible traits? And it's like, man, what are the odds of finding all of that? So just the challenge around friendships, and at times even the loneliness that can come with that, it sucks. I just wasn't realizing how hard it would be to make time for my longtime friends, let alone trying to make new ones. It's hard. It is hard. And I would say out of the top three lessons that I did not tell you thus far, <laughs> that mm. third one is the most challenging because it's the one that requires you to be the, the, the most selfless, right? Mm -hmm. It requires you to really put them first. Because I know that uh, you and I both are, are Christians, so I can say this to you. Ecclesiastes three one is something that I hold on to very, very dear, not just in parenting, but just in overall life, because everything does have a season. And just because you've had lifelong friends doesn't mean your friends are going to be there for your life, for your entire life. Mm -hmm. And change is hard, but when you have this little person, or in your case, persons, who require 24-hour care and you have to work and you have to sleep and at some point, you know, brush your teeth and shower and all this stuff to care of yourself and you have this relationship with your spouse or your significant other and you realize, yeah, there's 24 hours to start with, but now I only have 15 minutes left for my friends to hang out at the bar and there's traffic, so really it's only five. <laughs> and you realize, everyone can't go with me on this part of my journey. And it is hard, but you also, I don't know about you, but I also didn't notice it that much because I was just too busy trying to take care of my kid. Again, to your point, sometimes you don't even see it happening because you are just so unbelievably busy with kids. But there are moments, right? You get the boys down 7, 7.30 on a Friday night and it's like, wow, where did everybody go? You know, you just have gotten so lost in your own kid and life and work and relationship management that, yeah, it just it can get isolating all of a sudden, which is exceptionally hard when you're already living a tough life and you just want to sort of relax a little bit with some friends. And, you know, friendships don't just stay close by. You got to put some work into those as well. And I um, just wasn't prepared for that. Number four. And speaking of that, sort of the next piece of it is how much your marriage is going to change. Yeah. You know, not only is your friendship, but it's like, you know, I went into marriage, listen, I got a smoking hot husband. He's funny. We like to do all the same things. We started as friends, right? As good as it could be because we actually built the foundation of just really enjoying being around each other. And I didn't, unlike you, get married at a young age. Like I took my time. I found the right person. Like this is all wonderful. And children 
you know, all that sort of great foundation, everything sort of changes everything, right? Roles, responsibilities, um, the impact of how everybody handles stress and sleep and how they approach parenting versus you, the impact on your sex life, everything. A hundred percent of it is sort of turned on its head. And suddenly one of the most important gifts is sort of the art of communication through that. You got to keep such a close eye on it because years can go by and you're like, whoa, I, you know, you sure have changed and I sure have changed a lot. And now what? So as much as the friendships are changing, your marriage is changing. And boy, you better keep an eye on it. You didn't know that kids were going to change your sex life? Like every single 30-minute sitcom on television or network television yeah, has an episode that says who, that. You know, whatever. What do they know? Like I can't. One of the greatest episodes of Modern Family is when the kids walked in on them having sex. Don't you remember that? <laughs> no, I wasn't watching. Uh, so, well, that's your fault. I'm not taking that. I'm not taking number three then. If you're not watching all the clues that I, are on popular I, television, I'm not taking that hit. That's you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, not only did the, you know, your sort of relationship shift, but then there were all of these choices that you were sort of making, or I'll put it this way, unintended consequences that come out of the choice of having kids, right? The choice for Bill and I to have kids were with sort of an always. But you didn't realize all of the other sub-choices that were sort of getting made for you or the consequences that came out of that. Like, to a point, like, I used to love the idea of working for a startup. And, you know, who cares if I have health care? Who cares if I've got, you know, what the comp is? I want to know what the upside is. I want to see the opportunity. You know, those positions are not ideal for me right now. You know, if I, I love adventure and let's pick up and move to L.A., let's move to Paris, you know, oh, like... Might want to think about your kid in that one. <laughs> you know, you want to, we talked about hanging out with your buddies, you know, maybe having a long dinner and having drinks with them until, you know, some late hour. And it's like, oh, now I got to think about the <laughs> raising your kids like mild, mild, mildly hung over the next day. Like there were just so many choices that I was and things that I was sort of giving up that I did not know when you're sort of making the choice to have a kid. And I think being aware of those, if you could have made me aware of them, I think wouldn't have. <laughs> Dung so bad. I just, I just feel like there's, there's just way too much content out there that told you that no. when you had kids, this was going to change. There are <laughs> how I met your mother is all about this. Didn't watch it. I'm not Didn't taking. The, I'm not taking this. I'm not taking the responsibility of this one. I'm sorry. You should have paid attention. Listen, I'm blaming a lot on you. Personal accountability is not what not my favorite. So. <laughs> What is number four? Actually, it should be number three because I'm not taking number three. Actually. I know. Well, they're all like blending together. And I'll shift to one of the good ones. Um, for me, emotional intimacy with your kids is probably one of the greatest feelings and blessings like this world has to offer you. And it makes me emotional to think about. But when you, you know, so much of your time with them, they can be selfish and needy and need things from you. But when you capture those moments of closeness and intimacy with your kid, it is so beautiful, impactful, and, and for me, exceptionally motivating. It motivates you during the hard times because parenting is really hard. But knowing that those moments are there and are out there and they're still coming and you have the work to do to even get better ones. Wow. What a like incredible carrot and like incentive and wonderful thing about parenting that I I didn't know to fight for and to look for. I, I would tell you that I have found that the more you're willing to share, the more you'll have what you're talking about, right? Because the mm -hmm. less perfect and distant you seem and the more real you become to them, the more they begin to see you as the person they can come to with anything. Yeah, I I felt like my role was to be a coach, a trainer, and sort of a mentor and guider, you know, and, and so that there was some sort of distance there, I think, that I came into all of this with. And once I saw, to your point, um, the vulnerability, I, one of the comments you did make to me very early on, whether you remember or not, was, you know, the importance of being what, you know, as much as your kid's constantly changing, you know, you need to change with them and be what they need at that particular time and age in their life. And so really being thoughtful about where are they and who do I need, how do I need to show up both as a, as a parent, but as a, as somebody who loves them deeply and, and to really be thoughtful about that. And I now see the fruits of that. Yeah. I just, I don't know why I think I thought that emotional intimacy would sort of wait towards your, you know, in the later years. I mean, I did listen to that episode of your son, which I'll talk about that in a second, but 
it's just been wonderful to see that when you expose yourself a little bit, um, how much they also do it and how much that changes the way that um, the family works. And it's been really nice. I found it to be healing too. I don't know about mm-hmm. you, but I found my relationship with my son to be very healing from the relationship I had with myself growing up because I no longer remember those days as awkward or painful as much as lonely. And knowing that I was there for my son on that emotional level, I felt good knowing that I don't think he's going to be lonely. That doesn't mean that he won't have any, you know, problems in school or that he won't um, go through periods of loneliness. But me knowing that we've established a rapport in which he feels comfortable coming to me with the difficult conversations kind of made me feel as if when I was his age, it wasn't that I was strange and awkward and blah, blah, blah. I just didn't have anyone I can come to with these conversations. And I was really happy yeah. that we had worked in our relationship to the point in which he felt comfortable enough to come to me with that. So that maybe he wouldn't experience the same sort of loneliness that I did when I was his age. So I found it to be healing. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it'll change for me because my conversations will change. Right now I'm, I'm talking to a six-year-old, right? So, you know, that will go over time. I think so much of it for me now is him comfort level expressing his, both his sort of joy and things that really um, excite him, but also his fears. I was afraid a lot growing up in different ways. And so watching his vulnerability and comfort with me to say, this is something that's happening at school. This is something that's happening at home. That's like, I'm really scared and I need you. Um, boy, it's like the healing part of that for me is I, that was just not something I said (laughs) or something I felt comfortable enough to share. I just, you know, you toughen it out and there is loneliness that comes with that as well. So that has been some of the healing that I've received at this point. But what excites me is I know that if I do the work and I maintain that that relationship, I'm going to get some more gifts out of it. Uh, some healing that I probably don't even know I need. You use the singular pronoun his. Is there one who you feel more comfortable with or is more close with than the other? Because you didn't say they or both. The world of pronouns. No, I feel close to both of them. Okay. They both share differently and at different times, and you have to earn it differently. One is more vocal and has these conversations more frequently with me. One is constantly testing me and um, is testing to see if he can totally trust me. And I feel like I have to earn it differently. Not only do I see selfishly the value for myself, I know it's really important to them. So I got we, we got to make it happen. Let's switch lists because you you had two assignments. Do you have the, the your second list? I do have my second list, but I was interested to give you some feedback on your conversation with Isaiah. Oh, okay. All because right. this was another to me a wonderful thing that I think you could have helped me with, which is <laughs> this. I blame it all on you, and it feels great. But this this gift and sort of purpose and sort of the framework for decisions that your kids give you and sort of what matters. And for me, and you know this, I really struggled with what I was doing after tennis, right? I started tennis when I was two. I finished when I was 28. I didn't know what the point was. What am I fighting for? Like, what does winning look like? Where's the scoreboard? And I... I didn't know the, my topics really. And so I was listening to your podcast with Isaiah and it was great because you guys were having a little bit of a tough conversation and, and you were talking about how you made all of these decisions with your work in mind. And, and he was the framework of that. And I'm sitting there listening. I was working out. I think I was even texting you. I'm like, this is some BS. Like you are not being honest with yourself. Like you're basically saying, yeah, I'm going to take this, you know, LA Times thing. And, uh, but I'm doing it for Isaiah. And for the cash it could bring. And I was like, this guy is like so self-righteous. This is BS. Like LZ is not being honest. Like I understand that Isaiah must feel like at times LZ was putting himself first. And then I realized like, oh my God, I do the exact same thing. The prism for all my decisions, it's almost impossible not to is, you know, even as I thought about, you know, the USDA and do I try and move my way up? You know, Bill and I took a really long walk, which we don't take walks together. And it was sort of, what is it that you want to do? How is this going to impact our kids? How are we going to handle this in the short term, the long term? But every decision we're making is what's in the best interest of our boy. 
And frankly, lucky to have that approach now. I'm so thankful for it. I'm sorry that momentarily I judged you for it. And more than anything, I'm so excited because I could feel Isaiah's skepticism in the conversation. And I'm so excited for him to be a parent and realize the truth and authenticity behind what you said. Because it really is a wonderful gift. And I now see you differently as you were making those decisions. Um, that it was always all about him. And I think I didn't know that at the time. And, and I feel so fortunate to now live a life where you're making decisions for the best interest of somebody you love so much. And it's not just all about you. It's actually all about your child. And that's a, it's a wonderful thing. One, thank you very much for, for sharing all of that. Yeah, I knew in sharing that element of our relationship that people may have that response, right? The response that you had, you know, which is, Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. It was always about your kid. It wasn't about you being on television. <laughs> and because you know me so well, like mm -hmm. you knew me before I even had any television gigs. I was a newspaper reporter, not even like, you know, at the LA Times. I was in Atlanta as a newspaper reporter. I never even thought about television. I don't think you heard me mention television once or anything else other than writing. And so mm -hmm. the television work was always about the paper. <laughs> I started seeing the money. I'm going to be real with it. I started seeing the money from it. And I was like, I'll be able to pay for Harvard. I'd be able to pay for Yale if I do this right, if I save right, if I make the right call, if I, I'll be able to make sure he can go anywhere. I just can't screw up, right? I just have to stay on this yeah. path. And so that's how I started to branch out in my career. It wasn't because I was out of this huge desire to like wanted to be like a star, you know, the word I hate most out of anything is talent. Mm -hmm. I hate being called talent. That just drives <laughs> me crazy. It was really the motivation of, oh, well, this is, this is the path. I need to do more of this. I need to work harder at this. I need to get better at this because I think this is going to help me get to my ultimate goal. But I wanted to, to share with you, so you need to write this down because it took me a while to figure this part out. I don't see a pen. Are mm -hmm. you writing this down? You just, I'm, I'm writing. All right, fine. For most of my life, I thought that I was raising my son. I thought I was parenting him. I thought I was laying down the framework for him. And yes, that part of it is true. What I didn't realize until last year, last year. So I'm giving you a serious life hack right now. Better be writing this down. That your kid is actually raising you. You're not raising your kid as much as your kid is raising you because your child is requiring your best. Your child is requiring attentiveness that you plan, that you consider someone else, that you put yourself second or third sometimes, that your child is raising you to be a better person a more forgiving person, a more conditioned or, or someone who's more conditioned to love someone who's can fly by the seat of their pants and make, you know, lemonade out of lemons. The, the process of parenting, particularly those first first 18 years is a purging of all of your bad instincts. It's a purging of hey. your, if you allow it to be, it could be a purging of self-destructive behavior because you can't self-destruct because you have to be there for someone else who's completely incapable of taking care of themselves without you. So how would you have parented differently had you known that? Um, I probably would not have been as resistant to that process. I thought that I what I needed to do was figure out a way how to make the old me work with the new me. And it wasn't about trying to figure out how to make them work together it was about allowing my evolution to happen through the prism of parenthood. So I would simply say I probably would not have resisted the evolution as much as I did. I would probably run to it with open arms and allow that transformation to happen because at the end, it's only going to make you better. I was fighting my own blessings because I thought I needed to, you know, merge pre-father with, you know, fatherhood. And it's like, no. Pre-father was a season, just like Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, it was a season. The new season is I am father. And oh, by the way, that season's going to last a little bit. <laughs> like 20, 30, 40. Oh, it's <laughs> oh, not ending. It's not ending. Actually, heads up, this is the new climate. 
This isn't a season. Oh. This is a new climate. <laughs> I mean, just the permanency of it. That was like one of the early feelings I had, like day three, day four. I'm like, oh my God, you can't go back. Like most decisions, <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, baby, yeah, I don't know about that. Let's move back. Like, oh, oh no. No. This is no. it to the end. Uh, so I, uh, what else is on your list? Yeah. So these are just some other areas where like I kind of got it wrong. Um, oh, this is going to take a while. I, this podcast is only an hour. I know. Listen, <laughs> I thought like unsolicited, maybe parental feedback was helpful, right? Like if I saw one of my buddies, like maybe missing it on parenting, my sister is like, ah, she's not doing that right. Like, I'm just going to give some feedback. I personally coming from sports, like I love constructive feedback and criticism. Like, what do you think? What am I doing wrong? And how do I fix it? Now as a parent, I have to tell you, it is so ungodly irritating to have people come up to me and give me feedback about how and what to do and how to raise and how to discipline my kid. It sends me to the moon. Yeah, I miss that. I thought it was being helpful. And it's like, <laughs> there is nothing more personal than people sort of attacking and judging not only your child, but how you're approaching parenting with your child. Especially if they don't have children. I know. I know. And I did it so much. I thought I was so smart. <laughs> the people who feel the need to just, I don't know, parachute in with their wisdom um, on life and, and tell you how to raise your kid. And, and I actually think that the people with children are worse than the people without children because the people without children don't know how offensive yeah. this is, but the people with children actually do know. They know better. They know better, and they just go, I'm just going to push through. I just got to say something. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I do um, it, too. I don't know. Have I done uh, it to you yet? Have I told you what? No, I mean, don't. I, I, do, I do try to make sure the boys are dressed properly. You know, I do but try I, that. You sent some nice outfit. I don't trust your judgment when it comes to that. You shouldn't. I, I don't. I, I terrible style. <laughs> I do not. All right, give me one more. Um, I would always sort of notice when people weren't disciplining, this is sort of on the same piece, right? You're not disciplining your kid properly. Like, I didn't realize how hard it is to teach your kid the actual lesson, right? Because the tears and pain that they're going through as they are upset, struggling, getting something they don't want is really hard to just, like, stick it out and knowing it's in the best interest. I caught myself consistently saying like well have you asked your daddy you know like how can i push their disappointment like any level of disappointment they're gonna receive like go get it over there wait wait and it's just wait so just just so that the listeners clear they refer to you as dad and bill as daddy they refer to me as papa papa they go refer to bill as daddy so i'm like you like don't daddy and like get that sense of like disappointment over there you know because i'm the good one and i'm here to help like i just listen i'm still doing it i'm still doing the right thing but it's so hard to discipline them in a way that brings them pain and disappointment and sadness and tears and and loving them that much i didn't have a problem with the discipline part <laughs> ah. you know and I, I need to understand why i should probably go to a therapist about that because <laughs> because honestly i think your reaction to it is the is the desired one which is this is the parents say this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you like i never felt that way i was like no this is definitely going to hurt you this is not going to hurt me <laughs> <laughs> brian Vahaley, sir thank you so much yeah. for your time thank you for having me thank you for bringing me into your world I love Brian so much. He is my brother from another mother. And Roxanita, Roxanne, is my sister from another mister. For those of you who listened to the first episode of this season, and I encourage those of you who haven't to do so, it's a conversation with my son and I, you may have heard Roxanne's name mentioned multiple times. That's because she is basically the mom of the Johnsons family. The Johnsons is sort of the name we gave my family of choice. It's her, myself, and our um, two sons. We've grown up together over these last 20-some years, so I'm so excited for those of you to, one, meet Roxanne, Mama J, as LZ likes to call her. Uh, I call her Roxanne and sometimes just call her Jones, but it's just a conversation about parenting. 
So I'm going to piggyback off the exchange I had with Brian, how we sort of present ourselves to the world as parents, as black parents. What are your thoughts in terms of just how you kind of show up in various places while juggling stress and trauma? Well, you know what? I was laughing at that conversation because I think you the main thing you got right is our general theme is we do not tell our business. We don't tell our business. We might be struggling, dealing with a lot of issues at home, especially family business. Like, you know, the theme of the Johnsons. Mm -hmm. We don't know these people. We don't know these people. <laughs> so I think you really did get it 100% right when talking about how black parents kind of present to even our friends, like Brian's your friend, you know, I know Brian, kids. It's almost a cultural, it's just a default. We don't really show our pain and talk about our pain. We might do it around the edges, but you're never going to really, really know what we're going through. It's just out of habit, I think. And a sense of protection, right, for ourselves. Is it something as a people that we need to kind of move on from or do you think it's still like a necessary form of protection for ourselves? Mm, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that, you know, for our generation, like X and beyond, I think we are kind of coming out of still hanging on to the we don't know these people, but understanding that for our own mental health and for our growth, for the health of our children, we have to talk about our pain. We have to share it, find solutions together, sometimes just listen. And so I think we're doing a better job, certainly understanding the importance of discussing our pain out loud, and whether that's in therapy or just with our children, acknowledging it, and because we want them to be whole, healthy people. And we also have to teach them how to insulate themselves um, from all the hate uh, and prejudice in the world that's still really coming at us daily. So Roxanne, we've spent a lot of time together, we vacation together, our kids, and we all vacation together as one big giant Johnson family. But my mm -hmm. all-time favorite moment remains the time we were in the Dominican Republic. There was a gorgeous pool right in front of the boys. They can jump in at any moment, all day, every day. And they were sitting in the lounge chairs with their computers in their laps and didn't even glance at the water once. <laughs> oh my goodness, I so remember that. And I have pictures of them you know, on this beautiful beach, palm trees in the background, coconuts everywhere, and they are head down with their nose stuck in their computers. <laughs> and I don't think they looked up for hours, hours. Hours. With headphones on, so they couldn't hear us, like, you know, just totally ignoring <laughs> us, totally. Do you think that was like the biggest moment in terms of the generational gap between like us two and our boys? Or can you think of like another moment where you were just sort of like, that's a different generation? That's a good one. I, there's one other moment that stands out to me too, that was, that was a lesson for us in parenting and how we needed to evolve as parents. Uh, that was a good one because we knew that we had to figure out one that was normal, right? They weren't being disrespectful. But the way that we had to read that had been taught to read that when your kids are kind of in their own world, ignoring you not communicating. Old school parenting would have been, you know, you ungrateful so and so I spent all this my blah, blah, blah. That's what I would hurt. Oh, I was in my head saying that I didn't say that loud. But I definitely was thinking that I was like, are you, are you kidding me? You out the country got a gorgeous beach? Are you in a computer? What? <laughs> Exactly. That was old school way. And so didn't we catch ourselves and just kind of looked? I think we just decided we were going to do what we wanted to do, yes. have a little fresh beverage, do it, and they could do what they wanted. We were going to have so much fun, enjoy ourselves that once they looked up, they might want to join us. Right, you know, like right. this is what you're missing. I don't know what you're doing over there. So that was an evolution. It was funny, but it was also good for us as parents, you know, on this journey. And then I think the other time that really stands out for us as a family is, again, I can't remember what trip it was on, but when things would happen to them and they didn't want to tell us, like instances of racism mm -hmm. or, you know, people, uh, grown-ups really speaking out of turn to them, you know, all I would, I would put on the umbrella of racism they were afraid to come to us because they didn't know how we were going to go off. They were assuming we were really going to go off and like, because we're their protectors, right? Right. But, 
you know, we didn't, I think from those challenges, we, we kind of pulled back a little bit, said, yeah, there might be some times where, you know, we have to step to somebody, but you don't need to be afraid that we're going to do that every time. Like we'll learn to be better. <laughs> I think, I, I think LZ still feels like every single time he tells me something, I'm about to go off because I did challenge that guy yes. at the pool that one trip in yes. Costa Rica, actually. As you should have, as you should have. And you know, Malk knows as well that his mama could be a little crazy if somebody is, is doing something wrong to my son. I still like that they know that about us, but I also appreciate the journey we had to take to again, learn kind of a different approach with um, in parenting and how to communicate, how to help our kids feel safe, how to help them deal with confrontation, with microaggressions, with straight out racism. You know, we're taking a little bit of old school mm -hmm. and we're mixing it up with some a new skill set, I would say, that they can take with them now in this generation and still, you know, not have to worry that they don't know how to stand up for themselves. So for a good chunk of the conversation that Brian and I had, we focus in on his list, the list of things that I did not tell him about being a dad before he became a dad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm curious from your perspective, is there like a piece of advice you would want to send out into the universe for anyone listening about parenting, whether it's to Brian or, you know, one of your friends about, mm -hmm. you know, hey, my kid's an adult now. Let me tell you how I wish I would have known X before this happened. Wow, that's a good question. Huh. I think, you know, I was just talking to a bunch of guys this weekend, over the weekend, and one of them was about to become a father. And I was, you know, and he was like, oh, it's easy. You know, I'm going to be doing this. Like, oh, he's in trouble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I was just sitting back listening to the three of them talk, fly on the wall kind of thing. And I just kept thinking, he's in trouble. And then I, the only thing I said is, you know what? It's much harder than you think. It's actually pretty hard. Mm. And his eyes got big. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was like, ah, it's not going to be that bad. So uh, I was laughing at his list and that he was a little bit salty with you because he said, you, we're friends. You should have told me. <laughs> but, <laughs> You know, you kind of don't know what to say. One, I guess the only advice is give yourself grace. You don't know what you're doing. Mm. There's no way you know what you're doing, especially if you're first time, this is your first kid, you know, you won't know what you're doing. You'll try to pull from maybe what you, how you grew up, some little stupid book you read, which, you know, those are ridiculous, uh, I think. Um, but just keep talking, just keep talking in your busiest moments. You know, I see a lot of one thing that makes me kind of sad, and it's a little bit like what our kids were doing with the technology, head in the technology, but those were the kids. I'm seeing like parents like that now. So mm. nobody's talking. There's nobody to even say, like we were saying, like, look at these kids. I can't believe, you know, to recognize. Like, we sure were. You know? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, I think that just to keep talking and don't allow the moments to go by with your head, you know, stuck in an iPhone or stuck on social media and not actually talk, even launch the discussion off of what you're seeing on social media, because the only times where I think parenting goes goes wrong is when we, we don't we can't take those moments out to kind of communicate what we're feeling. So just keep talking. Keep talking. Absolutely. Isn't that what you told me over Christmas? It, that is meltdown? what I said over Christmas. Keep talking. But you know, I'm, I'm really good at giving advice I don't take. I know we all are. <laughs> <laughs> I know we all are. We all are. So it all sounds all very, you know, we got it down pat. But even at this day, you know, our kids are in their 20s. We don't. You never do. Never do. Roxanita, thank you so much for your time. I miss you. I miss you too, Grandy. This was beautiful. On the next episode of Life Out Loud. It's funny, I was the only Hannah around. Now there's like Hannah's everywhere. I mean, Hannah's business partner's name is Hannah. We speak with award-winning sports journalist and my friend, Hannah Storm, and her daughter, who's now the fourth generation to carry that family name. Now I feel like I have to name my kid Hannah, regardless of... <laughs> 
a gender in some capacity. <laughs> we talk about carving your own career path and challenging traditional gender roles. Seeing her do that like every single day and like literally the most male dominated field ever was really dope. In our house, it's like follow your passion, you know, whatever that is, right? But she really in high school, she wanted to be in music. And recognizing that representation matters. I'm prioritizing like LGBTQ plus individuals. You know, there's space for everyone. There's space for every type of queer artist, every type of like marginalized artist. That's next week on Life Out Loud. Life Out Loud with LZ Grandison is a production of ABC Audio, produced by Trevor Hastings, Lakia Brown, Brenda Salinas Baker, LZ Granderson, Cameron Shatavian, and me. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And a big shout out to Ariel Chester, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi. I'm LZ Granderson. I'm a mom of mine. Just, hey, just eat, eat your pancakes. pancakes. Right. <laughs> <laughs>